Hello, I'm William Gallagher. I'm the author of the BFI TV classics, The Biderbeck Affair book. And this is uh, the third in a series of podcasts about the show. Now, actually, I said there, The Biderbeck Affair, and if you read all the way to the end of that title, you can see this is actually about The Biderbeck Tapes. I'm assuming that you're actually watching this while we speak. Uh, my book does cover the tapes. In fact, my book does actually cover the whole of the Biderbeck saga, uh, the Biderbeck affair, Biderbeck tapes, and what was apparently the final story, the Biderbeck connection, plus details of what else came afterwards. Um, but this podcast is an opportunity for me to, to tell you more about the tapes. Uh, the Biderbeck Affair is the crux of the book. Um, the sequels, they get as much coverage as I could get in, but there's so much to say. But also, uh, actually, this is going to be quite a relaxed little podcast compared to the last one. Because in the last one about the Biderbeck Affair, I was cramming, cramming the stuff in, I was. Because it's uh, it was an hour slot. The Biderbeck Affair ran uh, six times one hour on ITV. And that meant the running time was, what, 50 minutes or so? We're now a minute and 17, 18, 19 into part one of the Biderbeck tapes. And it's about, it ran in a 90-ish minute slot and it's going to take 77 minutes of actual screen time. So we can just have a look, have a cup of tea and a chat, except actually... I don't know why that always makes me laugh. I've seen it a dozen times now. Uh, every other episode of the Biderbeck series, all of the affair and all of the connection, each episode is named after the first line of dialogue. And that is not the case in the two parts of the Biderbeck tapes. But you could listen for just a moment to the next line. Hell's Teeth was meant to be the episode title for this it's a long story why it wasn't um the Biderbeck affair itself grew out of uh, get lost this 1980s tv show that alan place did that was successful enough to get a sequel not well remembered um in fact it was the Biderbeck affair just in a different name and with different cast uh, very similar characters in fact identical characters under different names and as time went by um, availability of actors, all sorts of things combined to make the Biderbeck affair be reworked as a new thing. And actually it was a big success. It was vastly more successful than Get Lost would have been. But the Biderbeck affair was filmed in uh, the summer of 1984 and it aired in, starting in January 1985. After the filming and before it aired, ITV said no to a sequel. Now I cannot get details about this. I tried in the book, I spoke to all sorts of people. The belief is that it was Sir Paul Fox, now Sir Paul Fox, who was then head of Yorkshire TV, who said no to it. Uh, he told me he simply doesn't remember in it. Nobody can and there's no kind of documentation about it uh, that's still available in the archives. And part of that is because you're looking at the Biderbeck tapes. Obviously they said yes in the end. So the saying no now, the saying no doesn't seem terribly important, but at the time it was final. Um, nobody's quite sure why anybody would say no either when the Biderbeck affair was so good and so popular. But I think in some ways it makes sense. Um, I've actually been thinking about this more since I finished the book 
actually, so this isn't in there, but I have been pondering. The fact, um, when Get Lost got a sequel, it was going to be called Get Lost Revisited. That's what became the Beck Affair. But actually all six parts were written under this Get Lost Revisited title. The whole thing was shaped out. And I did mention this in the book, it was specifically shaped to be the end of the story. It was to be the second and final outing for these two schoolteacher detectives. So you can see ITV's logic that we've had two goes at it. Yeah. Um, the thing is, it does seem a little odd that they would make that decision before the show aired. You know, you kind of want to hold your fire until you know whether you've got a hit or not, usually. But that is the way it went. And that should have meant no more Beiderbeck tapes, no more Beiderbeck of any description. Except, even if ITV had never changed their mind and said yes, in the end, we would still have had more of Jill and Trevor. Maybe only one little bit more. But it would have been this. It would have been the Beiderbeck tapes done as a novel. Um, during the making of the Beiderbeck affair, Alan Plater was approached by Methuen, uh, publishers that have published a lot of his uh, stage play scripts, including the famous Close to Cold House Door. And they asked him if he'd be up for writing a novel. He did. The novel's tremendous, actually. I ended up quoting from it quite a bit in the book, and I really enjoyed the fact that I could do that. There's a certain favourite passages I've read over the year, and I could just bring them to you and say, look, isn't this good? Um, the books are long, long out of print, unfortunately, but they circulate on eBay, on Amazon Marketplace. Generally speaking, for more than they cost at the time, they kind of increase their value a bit. Not excessively, they are certainly affordable. And I actually had to buy a copy of The Beiderbeck Affair off eBay, the novel off eBay, because my copy was long, long lost. It was that kind of long, long lost where you find it after you've bought it again. So I do have a spare copy. I think I may have promised it to somebody or I'd give it to you. Uh, I mean, I managed to get a copy and it was in reasonably good condition. It's, you know, everyone I looked at was kind of reading copies rather than collectors. But reading is what I want you to do. Uh, Alan Plater is best known for his dialogue and, of course, for his television. You know he did stage, I just said, and there was so much radio work as well. But he did a few novels and i think i'm not very keen on one called oliver's travels but the rest uh the biderbeck certainly one called mysterio so he has a wonderful style a very late he writes like these characters speak um these characters are alan plato and this is how he was how he thought and i think that comes across tremendously in the novels and certainly does in the first novel of the Beiderbeck affair. I keep calling it a novel. Strictly the first one was a novelization. Um, it was written during the making of this. The script's been long completed but production was still underway and it was hoped to get it out in paperback um, if in time for the show. That's the definition of a novelization really, isn't it? It's out at the same time. Um, that didn't quite happen. Uh, it was very soon after the end but it was a little bit afterwards and by the time all that happened by the time that book came out by the time the Beiderbeck affair was airing and was such an instant hit Methuen had asked Arne Plater if he'd write another one they actually had to get permission from ITV because although they're Alan's characters it was an ITV program and ITV said yes so Alan began the Beiderbeck tapes a novel 
Um, it works out at about the same length as the Beiderbecke Affair. Uh, the Beiderbecke Affair on TV was six one hours. Uh, the Beiderbecke tapes here is two times 90 minutes or so, which is approximately half of this. I can't remember if I worked that out on my fingers with or without ads, but the tapes takes up about half as many minutes as the affair, but the novel uh, is pretty much exactly the same length. Um, and that was not for, that was not unintended. Um, I believe that Alan always had in mind that he would get it to television. I don't know, but I think so, and it kind of makes sense, because uh, if you remember that all this started me telling you this rambly stuff, because of the fact that this episode doesn't have a title that it would have done, that it would have been called Hell's Teeth. Well, when ITV did change their mind, and actually I do have slightly more detail on this, it's believed that executive producer David Cunliffe may have just kept banging on at Yorkshire TV and uh, Sir Paul Fox until they eventually said yes. Um, the original plan, it was so much in flux, it's hard to know what the plan was when, but at least at the, one of the earlier stages, the plan was to have another six-part serial, exactly like the Biodebeck Affair, six times one hours. That was so much the plan that Alan Plater wrote it. Um, with the Biderbeck Affair, he did all six parts before they changed the title. It got so far down the line with that. That wasn't the case with the Biderbeck tapes, but he did write two episodes of the six, of what the six were going to be, and episode one had the title Hell's Teeth. Uh, I'm trying to remember now what the second one was, because I've read these scripts. Um, the second one was called something like Let's Have That Again as we get uh, kind of previously on the Beiderbeck tapes episode. Um, so at some point, Alan was writing the six. I have the impression from some notes that he was doing a bit of it on spec. I'm not sure again about that because there's some documentation that basically says, okay, could you stop now for a little bit? I think I may be exaggerating that a bit there. But it's certainly at some point after the two... Um, Although he was commissioned to write the Beiderbeck tapes proper, uh, there is no episode three through six. Instead, he started again and reworked it. Now, this is why there's no episode title. He initially reworked it to be one episode long, a Beiderbeck special, a two-hour Beiderbeck movie. After, well, he told me that one of the reasons that there were all these changes was that uh, this was around the time of the minor strike or the or the aftermath, really, of the minor strike, and, and all industry was very depressed. It's kind of familiar feeling now. Um, and Yorkshire Television's budgets were stretched and things, and a six-parter, it's obviously costly. You got you, you think they've got to fill the time somehow. They've got air dates to fill and things, but. Their plan was, we can't do a six, let's do a two-hour movie, and Alan wrote it. Now, I believe he wrote it, because I seem to remember that he actually told me around the time I first met him that he'd done that. But there is no extant copy of a one-part Beiderbeck script. So it may have just been very far down the discussion line. After some period of all this discussion, um, the one-parter became a two-parter. Now, when you do a one-parter, Alan said this to me, when there's a one-parter, you don't have an episode title, do you? It's the Beiderbeck tapes. So then when it was two, he says he forgot. So he just went out as episodes one and two. But episode one 
would have been called Hell's Teeth. And the second part never did have an episode. The second part would have been the equivalent of what? Episodes 4, 5 and 6. And he didn't get anywhere near that in the scripting side. This is a very long, babbly way to tell you that there was an enormously long and babbly route from the affair through to the Beiderbeck tapes. Um, I do think it's interesting why um, why Beiderbeck went why the Beiderbeck tapes went from a movie to being, I mean, from being a TV movie to being a two-parter. Um, after it had aired, Alan Plato was saying that he wasn't really sure about this extended format, this ninety-minute-ish. One. Uh, he said something like um, the hour format is better suited to these stories that there's no there's nothing that's really quite epic enough about Jill and Trevor and Mr Gutter there that the smaller size suited these smaller adventures and I think I do think he's right but I really like the tapes the reason I mean maybe that's because 90 minutes and without commercials doesn't feel an awful lot longer than an hour uh two parts more than one part also makes it a serial doesn't it it's not everything crammed into one you still have a feeling of a little bit of leisure that you're coming back and Barnabek Affair quite famously didn't really bother with cliffhanger endings or even very big finishes to most of its episodes so when you especially maybe when you watch these back to back the two parts it's it has the same feel in that sense of the affair. I think it looks very different. Um, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. The reason for doing two parts instead of one, uh, I am sure that this is down to money and nothing else. And you can see a logic here. You're making, you've got to fill two evenings with drama. Um, that's a certain amount of time on the air, and you will sell a certain amount of advertising around it, so you have a certain amount of income. You have a certain amount of expenditure too. When you're making two films, um, well, all it, it's double of everything, isn't it? Um, writers don't get paid enough to make a big dent in this, but it's two writers instead of one. Um, it's two series of casts, two directors, two productions, two locations. The, the physical apparatus of shooting is doubled. Now, that it isn't a straight doubling, really. I shouldn't say that word because a writer would get paid for writing two episodes um, just the same as two writers would for getting paid one, in theory. In practice, things do squeeze down a bit and there is inevitably um, an economy of scale. Um, you are doing so many setups at the school. All these wonderful shots from the stairs in this part and the next step, they were filmed at the same time. Of course they were. Every shot, every scene set at Jill's house, always done on the same time. So that's, uh, even though the mi the footage minutes at the end can be the same, the number of setups, the number of days, the number of travel to the location days, yeah, it cuts away, it trims away. So two, what, two parts that run for two times 90 minutes is going to be cheaper to produce than two separate ones that are made at the same time. But they are going to get you the same amount of income. It's two bites at the budget cherry, is a phrase I remember hearing actually around the time that this was made back in the late 80s. So, uh, so is a word that should be followed by a proper sentence, shouldn't it? I'm only 15 minutes in, 1546. 
actually, and I am losing the track of so. Are you losing the will to live here? I think the interesting thing with television is that so is probably going to be about the fact that we've ended up with two episodes for purely fiscal money reasons rather than art, for example. Um, television writing is commercial, and this is... Is this one of the most commercial things that Alan Plater ever wrote? Uh, I think ultimately it was, but it certainly didn't seem it at the time. I mean, The Beinebeck Affair, six hours about two school teachers in which nothing happens. I don't think that would be commissioned today, actually. The Beinebeck Tapes, well, that's more inevitable, really. Despite ITV saying no that time, sequels are inevitable. It is television you're going to get sequels to a hit. Uh, I wonder, actually, the, I mean, this is the second series, and there was a third, The Bidebeck Connection, which, not to spoil the next podcast, uh, I think is substantially weaker than these two. Um, you can take things on too far. Alan Plater said that if you kept going with this, it would take on uh, the feel of a soap, and that soap is not my bag, he said. Um, but series thing with a series when it's a hit of course you want more as a viewer i mean yeah as yorkshire tv you want more don't you want a guaranteed audience as near as you can ever guarantee one so of course you want a sequel and all of us don't we want more of things we like you get to the end of the biderbeck affair um, i was actually um i was in a hotel in hull at one point yeah, sorry, I may have said this in one of the other podcasts, sorry. Um, I was doing some research, the whole history archive, spent all day there going through scripts. I actually photographed every page of the Beiderbeck scripts on my iPhone. I made a special arrangement with them to let me do that. It was quicker than scanning, and there was so much material. And it meant I could spend the evening going through that material, saying, right, this is what I've got, this is what it tells me, that leads me to this. So I could go back in the next day with this huge long list of things I really needed to follow up on. And I had quite limited time in there, so that was incredibly useful, but it meant I was biderbecked out by the end of even the first night. Except there I am in my very, very cheap, lonely little hotel. The neon sign outside somebody playing a saxophone nearby and the local pizza hut delivering that was a good bit sitting there oh god i remember it's such a hot day i should put towels out and this oh i'm getting embarrassed now i was not wearing an awful lot we can edit this right it was hot i was flaked out i was just panting sweating, and i had i got i undressed after the pizza came okay but i was sitting there it was about 10 o'clock at night it was just dizzy from caffeine and drinking coke and having pizzas and calories and all this stuff and i just wanted to relax over something and all i had to watch on my ipad was the biderbeck affair and i really enjoyed it it was the last episode i think i may have seen the last two fifth and sixth were on there and i remember thinking going into episode six how disappointing it is knowing that that's going to be the end I'd seen this show so many times, but something gets you. And I thought, no, you, you wanted to carry on, and it does. It carry on with the tapes. But I, I think I said TV writing is commercial rather than artistic. But I think that's bollocks. Basically, it has to be a bit of both, or it doesn't work at all. 
we want more, we say, and uh, we want more, say, the TV companies. I think what we're really saying, certainly what they're really saying, is they want more of the same, please. Can we have another Biderbeck affair? And often enough, that's exactly what you get, and it doesn't work. I mean, you know what it's like. Sequels um, just are never as good as the original, and there are reasons for that. You can go too many times to the well. Um, if you write a film, it used to be that it was about the most key moment in the lead character's life. It's when they fell in love. It's when they saved the world. And really, next week, they're not going to fall in love again. They're not going to save the world again. Um, and that worked. That was fine. But it made sequels to films very hard. TV series, because they are very deliberately lower scale, yeah, this is a slice of their life rather than being the biggest moment in their lives. They can carry on, but they can become soap-like. Beiderbeck never quite became soap-like, but I I think it succeeded here because the Beiderbeck tapes is sufficiently similar but sufficiently different to the affair. These are the same characters we know and love. We have come back to them. And that it's not that they've moved on. I mean, we've now got Trevor being a probationary cohab. So practically and logically, you can see a movement in where they live. But they are the same characters. And in many ways, they're kind of unaffected by what's happened to them in the affair. So it's slightly unusual that it's not moved them on a huge amount. And yet, it doesn't try to repeat itself. Possibly that's... Maybe it would have felt like a repeat if it was a six-parter. You read the two scripts that Alan did, the episodes one and two of the six-parter version, and I know it's hard to tell, really. I don't know. If you read, do you read a lot of scripts? I always find that if I've read a script of something that I've seen, the bits that didn't make it into the final version somehow don't seem as good as the ones that did. I mean... They may have been cut purely for time reasons, but they're somehow tainted a little bit. So, I mean, I was very excited to read the two scripts, but I didn't think that they worked as well as the final thing. Sorry to sleep about here, but a thought occurs to me. One thing that really astonished me reading these two scripts was how similar, actually, they are to the final result. Now, I don't. you may not be shocked by that. It's the same story. All the way through this, the novel, the six-part of the one-part version, the final two-part version, it's the Beiderbeck tapes, it was never anything else, and it's the same story with all of these same characters. It's just, somehow, Alan wrote a novel, and then he wrote a one-part version, maybe, and he certainly wrote two hours of it. Then he wrote the full story in two feature-length chunks. And you compare them side by side, and he's really cleverly reused things he wrote all the way through. You can see the same lines uh, starting in one, appearing in the next, and continuing. Uh, actually, I, I'm i talking a lot over the show because there's so much to tell you about how we got to this stage. But um, do you remember back a little bit earlier where we met John the Barman for the first time? And they were in the pub, and there's this jazz music playing. Um, if you were listening to me instead of the programme and you don't remember what the programme 
So you do watch the programme before you listen to me rabbiting on, don't you? That scene had John the Barman, uh, he was playing Big Spiderbeck music. Okay, actually Frank Ricotti's version of Big Spiderbeck music. Trevor goes up to him and says, are you a Spiderbeck fan? In every version of the story, John the Barman says exactly the same line. Uh, I can't quite remember it. Actually, you think it would be in my head after reading it so many times. Uh, but it's basically, yes, I used to be, only recently, he says, used to be into Dylan and the Mothers and something. But then I heard this, like, Biderbeck music on a TV show, and I thought, like, wow. You know, don't you? You know. Oops. End of part one. If you're watching this on a TV version, I should shut up. Let me come back in just a second. And we're here with, episode, with part two of episode one. I'm sorry, that was such a tease, leaving you hanging there. Uh, what I was saying was about the music and John the Barman saying, what's it? I'm sorry, I just laughed at Dave the Wimp in the background there. It's just, I don't know how he makes looking behind a tree, from behind a tree, look funny, but he does. And that's really nicely lined up how cleverly he is between them most of the way. Um, John the Barman has said that he's into this. He heard it on a TV show. Now, Without knowing anything else, you know, you can just feel it, can't you, that that's a gag. He means he watched the Biderbeck affair and that its theme music got him into this. It's not just a feeling, that is absolutely true. Um, in the six-part version of the script, uh, it goes even further. There's directions specify. In all versions, it specifies that this is real music. It's real big Spiderbeck music brackets Frank Ricotti rather than just pub music but the six-parter script actually says something like um, if we want to press the in-joke further we could make the music that's playing in the pub be the theme to the first series it actually says and to this one if they're the same and there's a lot of stuff going on there about uh, what this would whether the music would be the same for it that seems impossible now, but at the time, would it be Bix Beiderbeck? Um, I said, actually, I may have misspoken here. I said in all these versions, it was the Beiderbeck tapes and it was never anything else. Um, once it was the Beiderbeck tapes, the novel, that's kind of true. It was the same story. But the original plan, and I definitely have mentioned this before, I'm sorry to repeat myself, was not to call them all Beiderbeck. It would have been the Beiderbeck Affair, the Gillespie tapes, uh, the Yardbird Suite for the last one. So maybe the music could have been Dizzy Gillespie in this, in which case maybe the only snatch of Beiderbeck we would have heard was back there in the bar. Have we actually caught up with how this got to be made in two parts instead of one? So there's a reference there to the man with no name. My favourite character name in the entire Beiderbeck saga is Peterson the man with no name, and that isn't him. I should probably actually start talking about the plot here. We're now 27 minutes in. I'm saying that to you in case you are watching one of the aired versions on TV and they've edited it out, and it's just ugh, edited it to get more of those essential commercials in. Um, I'm watching on the network DVD release. Um, I recommend them about as often as I recommend my book. Um, that release, I, uh, there have been several Beiderbeck DVD releases, or at least uh, two in the UK and I think one in the States, uh, and this is the best one. Network DVDs, the Beiderbeck Trilogy. 
I mean, it's uh, done for them one of the anniversaries. It's a nice collection, a nice set of the three Bidemex series, but it also has the soundtrack album by Frank Ricotti's All-Star Band, and it has Get Lost, a show I mentioned earlier, as an extra. Four-part drama by Arn Plater as an extra. Love that set. And if you are watching on that set, you already know all of this. But maybe you don't know that we are now 28 minutes into this. So maybe, maybe you probably guessed that as well. 28 minutes into it and I'm finally going to talk to you about the plot. I think that's actually appropriate in a way for an Alan Plater drama and maybe especially for a Beiderbeck Alan Plater drama. Um, Alan used to say that he didn't really care about plots. Uh, I don't want to call the man a liar. If you look at his scripts and your details and you dig in a little bit you can see he was really smart about things worked, the kind of structure underneath things. His plots, generally speaking, are really tight, even though they look extraordinarily relaxed and casual. So maybe he meant more that it's the plot comes second, and, and I certainly did. In fact, actually, um, let me tell you a personal thing. I, I am a scriptwriter, okay? I do Doctor Who audio dramas. I've had some stage success. I did a tiny bit of, a very, very tiny bit of television a long time ago. I worked on Crossroads for a few weeks. Um, Alan read my first scripts um, 10 years or so after I first met him. I'm not sure. And I clearly remember being in his house. Alan played in Shirley Rubinstein's house, chatting away about this. And I believed at the time that plot was really important. And uh, I can see him not approving actually. There's a, a line that comes up every now and again in all sorts of Alan Plater dramas where somebody says something naff. I mean, the Beidebeck example, I think there's a bit uh, where someone doesn't like jazz and Trevor says, you know, it's not compulsory. Um, and he says it in a way that's like a door slamming shut. You know, it is compulsory. It is over. We will never talk about this and that never happened with Alan and I but I know he said it's not compulsory to me before and it, that it, you know that really got into me um rung bells with me and I don't want to say that upset me because it kind of spurred me on more than upset but um I, I knew what it meant and I got that over the plotting thing that I was then so obsessed with um, I, I've been actually told now that I write good plots. Um, it's important that you know I mean, I praise myself here a lot. Because I think, you know, you're listening to this thinking, why is he talking about Beiderbeck? Let him praise himself instead. Uh, plotting does work for me, though. It is one of the few things I am good at. But um, I believe I got to that stage by ignoring plot completely. Basically, sod the plot. If the characters are right... That's all that matters. I go slightly further than Alan actually said, although I think, I think he thought this. If you can think what, if you can accurately think what anybody thought, dialogue is the most important thing. Um, I work this way: if I don't believe what a character is saying, I don't believe the character. If I don't believe the character, I could care less what goes on in the plot. Let the world blow up. Let them be killed for it. And depending on the extent of how much I don't believe the characters, I'm long gone. Here, with Beiderbeck, the plots, 
well, this is an unusual one, actually, because the Beidebeck tapes has quite a key plot. Um, I don't want to spoil it. You must have, you must watch it before you listen to me. The plot of the Beidebeck tapes is a lie. So um, it's a big cheat, in fact. Uh, the ending is revealed. We've been lied to all the way through. Um, but it doesn't matter. Right now, the Beidebeck tapes, we have a through line. We actually have a mystery. Um, and we're pursuing it a little bit. Emphasis on a, a little bit for it. Um, we're with the characters, whatever they're doing, but the fact that they have a purpose, and you wonder how long that took to get that dog doing his doings there. That's the unfrocked bank manager, by the way. He's never named as such in the show, but he is in the novels. Yet another reason, if yet another reason be need be, to read the novels. Mr. Dudley Sutton, a wonderful Mr. Carter. Truly, truly, trying to remember what I was saying just before I got distracted by the dog. Sorry about that. Um, we're with the characters to the end, but it helps that they actually have something to do. I think that's a really fine line. Um, I'm kind of playing two sides here. I do believe that plot comes from character. Um, what matters to a character is the story and the story becomes the plot. If you watch an episode of Casualty, for example, that's being done on a uh, a special theme night promoting a particular good cause, it'll be a great cause, but it'll be an awful episode because characters will come in effectively, metaphorically holding their placards for it. And it's not a cause they had last week. It's not a cause they're going to have last week. It's not a cause I'm paying any attention to this week. When something happens to a character, and yeah, it's an incident, it's a big political or emotional issue, terrific. When it's which character can carry that bit of the plot this week, not terrific. There have been some really bad examples of television. American TV fans have a term for this, I've got this. Um, they call it a very special episode. Because that's how NBC and CBS and ABC always used to announce uh, their episodes. You know, when it was about an anti-drugs, a just-say-no event it would be. And now on NBC, a very special episode of Different Strokes or something. I don't care about drama. Excuse me, I don't care about plot. I care about drama. Um, I'm not... I am fussed about story, but I care about the people in the story. And I think without question... Jill and Trevor and Mr Wheeler. The, all of these are surely the finest characters that Alan Plater created. So I would have said that whatever they do, I'd be interested in. Um, that doesn't actually happen in the Bidebeck connection. The Bidebeck connection just gets a little too loose. No, it doesn't, actually. If you wouldn't mind listening to the connection podcast that follows in this series i'll make sure to talk about how there is plot but it's actually not carried by jill and trevor it's carried by the two lazy policemen the fantastic lazy policemen Beidebeck tapes it has a plot which is actually more than the Beidebeck affair did it's more of an issue than was in the Beidebeck affair it's slightly closer to the original get lost get lost uh, was about missing people specifically a missing husband initially this is about the dumping of nuclear waste in the Yorkshire Dales. It's It sounds so much like an issue-led drama. And I, I really... I could not have written 
an issue-led drama that in the last reel admits the issue isn't correct. I nearly said reel again there. So I can't really think of anybody who could pull off a twist like that and not have you actually think that it's a twist, not have you resent that you spent all this time. There's this funny balance between great characters and what they're doing and it, I think it's just perfect in the Beiderbeck tapes and I think it fails in the Beiderbeck connection. I also love that the Beiderbeck tapes is funny. The desperation in this staff room and the calmness which turns out to be so wrong. Since they're now talking about the school trip and are having to go on it uh, this is time to tell you something else about the school trip. Um, it's going to end up being to um, Amsterdam. Fine. Uh, it was in the book as well, in Alan's original novel. The school trip goes to Amsterdam. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, I, I'm really sorry. I, I keep hesitating. Like I don't want to spoil things. Um, you know that the school goes to uh, Amsterdam. You know that Jill and Trevor are detained. They don't get there at the same time. And by the time they do the school trip, they've been deported. Um, so, in fact, Jill and Trevor never get on this school trip. They just go to the right place. While they're there, stuck in Holland, they are being pursued by what Alan calls the Grey Guardians in the book. Um and they are then taken on, they get rescued. This is sound sound really silly when you pile it up, but it's amazing how it just flows naturally when it works. Sorry, yet another aside. Alan Plater has said before that any one thing that has Judy Brooke as Yvonne, she recurs in the Binderbeck connection. She's actually the only one to appear in the tapes to reappear in the connection. Uh, someone who wasn't in the affair who comes back. Uh, she comes back as a babysitter. Um, Bugger, I've done it to you again. It's like I'm watching the show and distracted by it at the same time. The business of them being chased. Okay, Alan said that any one thing that happens is fairly reasonable, sometimes very reasonable, but it's when you string them all together you get this incredible, surreal Thing. It's surreal with reality. Um, San Quentin High is plainly a ridiculous school, but you don't think that when you're watching it. You think that's what my school was like. Everybody's school was like San Quentin High, even though nobody's school was anything like it. There's an essential truth that Alan Plater gets into, particularly the Beiderbeck saga. Um, and okay, back to the business of trying to explain the plot and not make it sound silly. I'm just going to give up on that and make it sound silly as is. You know it works. They get rescued when they're in Holland by the Grand Order of Elks from California. And they are whisked away on a coach and they are whisked away to the airport. So far, all the same. In the book, however, the original novel, they end up with the Elks going to um, Athens. And there's some wonderful gags in there about it. Um, there's also some wonderful bits that uh, just didn't make it into the show, the final version of the show. The biggest, I suppose, is Athens. In the book, in the TV show, they go to Edinburgh. Um, Shirley Rubenstein says to me now that, uh, yes, it would have been better to go to Athens, of course, but it was a nice giggle that they ended up in Edinburgh because it, that is the Athens 
of the North. And it was money reasons, of course. It also came back to this whole process of when ITV said no and when they said yes. They said no to a TV sequel. They gave permission to Matthew and Alan to continue with a book. And then when they wanted a sequel, they had to buy the book. So if you look at the credits uh, of this at the end, um, it's written by Alan Plater based on his book. Um, having bought the book with uh, with Athens in it, apparently Yorkshire TV told Alan, we can do Amsterdam, but we can't do Athens. And he told me in 1980, late 87, just before the Bidebeck connection aired, that there had actually been some tussling about this. Uh, things went back and forth. Uh, I presume this was all going on at the same time as working out a length for it and you know that it was down to money so the issue with the minor strike and depressed industry was a factor there but it did come down apparently to ITV saying if you insist on Athens we will pull the show and Alan said to me um, it's only a little bit of art and he let it go but it's funny looking at if you read the books and see the script and you did see he managed to save one of my favorite jokes from it uh, from the original version there, when Jill and Trevor discover that they're going to go to Athens, Jill says, "We'll see the, we'll go to the Acropolis," and Trevor goes, to say, "Great, I've been to the pictures in ages." Now you're thinking you couldn't use that joke because he didn't get to Athens in the end, but Alan managed to keep it in there somehow. Maybe not very subtly, but he kept it in, and it was a lovely line to have. We did lose other things, though, um, not altogether to do with money partly to do with time partly to do with availability time in the sense that this was only going to be two episodes of 90 minutes airtime each uh, rather than production time um, and availability in the cast didn't appear I just said that uh, Judy Brooke as Yvonne she's the only uh, one that's new to the tapes that recurred in connection well one of the people few of the people that didn't make it into the tapes but were so great in the affair um well there were several weren't there There was sergeant hobson ba he's back in the connection big al and little norm they're in the connection too um let me deal with sergeant hobson ba first um he's here sergeant hobson ba in the affair he's inspector hobson phd in the uh, connection but in the middle he was something, he was here. He was slightly shadier. I mean, you can see Malcolm Story there as, as the wonderful Peterson, the man with no name. If you stick with this, if you stick with this, of course you're going to stick with this. And I only talk through episode one, by the way. You're on your own episode two, you can just enjoy that. If you watch episode two, now there's a scene towards the end where Peterson, the man with no name, basically explains the plot to Jill and Trevor and what was really going on. In the novel... He doesn't. Um, instead, it's actually Hobson who comes to the house uh, to do that. It's a nice way of getting Hobson in, and it's very interesting. It kind of points to murkier routes, career paths for Sergeant Hobson. But with Hobson coming in at the end like that, it meant all of the best Beck affair characters were back in the novel, the Beck tapes. And I apart from maybe Jill and Trevor, and the fact that I love this name, Peterson, man with no name, surely the greatest characters of them all are Big Al and Little Norm. And they were back in force in the Beck tapes. Um, none of this survived, so let me 
ruin the book for you. In the Biderbeck Affair, Big Al and Lom, they're running this The White Economy. They are cutting out the middleman and getting things at cost price to help the local community. Um, the implication in the Biderbeck Tapes novel is that that does continue, but the Big Al has expanded. Um, I just said that uh, this was around the time of the minor stroke and the depression of industries. It's not like Alan Plater was unaware of that. It was actually a factor in the novel of the tapes. What Big Owl was doing with Little Nom was running special holidays, specifically special holidays to Athens, where uh, people who'd been made redundant would go. And, you know, nice to have a holiday, I guess. Um, it feels a bit hard. I would find it very hard to just go on holiday having been made redundant. But there was a benefit to this. Actually, there were benefits to this in that if you went on holiday, if you did this, if you did all this, if you spent all that you can spend, uh, you get through your redundancy pay quicker and you start unemployment benefits faster. And economically, you and your family were better off for doing that. Um, it doesn't sound right, but then redundancy doesn't sound great either. It was a scheme that Big Al was successfully running, and he was in Athens with a group of uh, redundant miners doing what he does before heading back. Oh, sorry, I need to say, we're 45 minutes in. That moment there, uh, this section here, when they're talking about uh, get the tape and throw it away, that was the end of part one in the original script so we're what 45 minutes in um that's interesting actually that would have been pretty much the length of it it's just uh, i said that um he started off with a book that was the same length and then started to write six parts and then it became two so he was squeezing and squeezing and squeezing um the 45 minutes to now uh, they are quite different in that one-off script immense numbers of same lines but they are compressed there's like more of the story has been done behind us, but this is about the end point of it and the plans of what they do next is the starting of the next episode. But back to Athens. There's Big Al and Little Lawn, and they are in a taverna. Um, if you remember the bit in the tapes as aired, where there's uh, in Edinburgh there is a is it a marching band? I can't remember the right term for it. Um, definitely, shall we say muscular people with a an interest in violence um perhaps especially well this is so played up in the novel i, I kind of brought it to the tv show i can't remember how much is in the show a propensity to violence towards the english shall we say yeah, it's funny i can't quite work out why that was in the novel uh, it was definitely there's a whole theme they weren't the the scottish people they weren't the um musicians or i can't remember what that group was it wasn't them it was big al little norm and the miners and they were english i mean they were yorkshire and there's always been this interplay of not trusting anybody from outside yorkshire so the gray guardians that are following jill and trevor are very definitely not our type of english and um, perhaps that's just it degrees of englishness the gray guardians you just you know you see them they are london kind of things and there was always an amusing uh, anti-London bias in the Beiderbecke trilogy. Um, we're, so we have this stuff with uh, Big Al and Norm, and uh, I suppose it's back to plot again, isn't it? The plot's the same. Jill and Trevor are in trouble. Jill and Trevor are rescued. 
Uh, it's just in the book they're rescued by Big Al, Little Norm, and all the redundant miners. In the series, it's by these um, big people in red. Do you know, the more I say that to you, the less I remember what they're called. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, it shouldn't be much of a difference then, but the fact is that, again, it's character. It's, it's exciting, actually, in the book when it's Big Al and Little Norm. Exciting enough that the coincidence of happening to come across them at exactly that right, that right time in exactly the right place. You don't care. It's Big Al. It's Little Norm. It's great. I, mean, I think it works the way it's played in the TV show, but it's a very enjoyable section of the novel, and it's a way to get Big Al and Little Norm in. Now, we lose Athens, we gain Edinburgh, we also lose Big Al and Little Norm, but at least a major factor in why is the availability, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, of the, the actors for it. Um, Big Al and Little Norm, excuse me, Terry Rigby was actually, Terry Rigby, forgive me, was uh, when this was being produced, he was actually working uh, in Crossroads. And I think I mentioned this in the By the Beck Connection podcast because he comes back then. But he's working on Crossroads, which is filmed uh, in the Midlands. And there's actually a line in the connection about how he's been away in the Midlands, he says, in that gravelly, deep, portentous voice of his. And if anything stops the By the Beck tapes being as much... No, I'm, I'm havering about this. Part one of the Bidebeck connection is immense fun, and much more fun than the series as a whole, because all of these great characters are back. The Bidebeck tapes ought to be the lesser, because there's so few. I mean, we lose th uh, three major characters. Um, but I wonder if, in the end, that helps. You know, I mean, here's the gravedigger, Peter Martin, playing Charlie, and he comes back in action. Ah, I told you a lie there, I told you a pork. Um, Yvonne is not the only character to go from the tapes to the connection. Charlie makes a brief appearance too. Uh, we, we would have had him in some form. Would we have had him back? Well, would we have had him back if he wasn't so good? I don't know. We also get to see like Mr Pitt. He comes through and is... I quite like the fact that in The Meiderbeck Affair, Mr Pitt is, meets Jill, and in The Meiderbeck Tapes, he meets Trevor. And for ages, neither of them realises, and yet we do. There's something delicious about that um, it seems too small to be called rebellious but you can't imagine a, a modern day television drama not spelling out in some way that it's the same character and that's fun I think it's funny enough that's another thing that takes away from it being a coincidence that our two leads meet Mr Pitt who just happens to have changed jobs between the two it's a nice little I haven't played to use coincidence much more than I realised um, in the Beinebeck Affair and Tapes and Connection, um, I mean, I was aware of coincidences, but studying it for my book, the BFI book, I would really find it surprising how much you just gleefully lap up. I, in terms of coincidence of where characters are, of when things happen, the surreal nature of how the plot carries on in quite wild, handy leaps sometimes. Um, it's a cheat a lot of the time. Maybe that's why the t plot twist ending of the tapes doesn't feel so out of kilter with the rest. I'm trying to remember what I felt like when I saw it in uh, the 80s. I'm sorry, it aired in 1987. Um, 
I don't think I was ecstatic that it was a plot twist, but I do know I didn't care about nuclear waste in the Yorkshire Dales as much as... Well, by the end, yes, I thought it was a bad thing that such dumping would happen. I I'd completely bought the logic that it was disinformation, uh, that we were that in the Bidebeck world the government was letting this story out so that they could then deny it and when nuclear waste gets dumped somewhere else, at least it's not the Yorkshire Dales. Completely buy that. I'm I'm a cynic and this was around the time of Yes Minister, wasn't it? I believe all of this kind of stuff. Uh but I didn't care. You uh, care's the wrong word, isn't it? It didn't matter to me that the plot was about an issue or that the plot turned around in the last few minutes because I did care about the characters for it. It's funny, isn't it? You look at this. Um, this could really... Trevor Chaplin could be quite a clichéd figure. He is his teacher who likes jazz. And um, right there, he l lurched into a list of jazz names. And well, why would you do that when you come into an office? But he would. And somehow, you know. And even this, uh, singing like that. Is it singing? Is that what you call it? I'm not really sure it has a word anymore. But it's right. Works. It's a it's a very delicate thing, the Bidebeck world, but the tapes somehow, to my mind, uh, works in it perfectly, even though it's very different. I said it uh, very different. Let me look at the ways that it's different. There's obviously the length business that we've already talked about. I think there's actually a, a look difference. I mean, this is directed by a different person. David Reynolds did most of the Bidebeck affair, <coughs> excuse me, and Brian Parker directed these two parts. Um, just to be complete, Alan Bell did the Bidebeck Connection. Um, the Bidebeck Connection is very colourful somehow. Um, if I, When I watch it back-to-back -back with The Affair, you know, checking something, I am struck by how much more vivid it is. I have wondered, actually, whether it's just the tapes have lasted better, and portraits of words there, the footage has survived better for The Connection because there's a lot of little screen faults on The Affair even in the DVD release of it. But somehow the tapes seems, Bidebeck tapes seems more muted, seems a little darker in the look. The colours are toned down, certainly compared to the collection, but I think also compared to the affair. There is a difference there. You look at Jill, um, actually talking to Barbara Flynn about this, she was thinking that Jill had been kind of done up a bit for the later ones she's slightly more i can't remember what barbara's words were but i think she was more floppy in the first one less studied in a way not i don't mean in barbara's performance i mean she was dressed more she was costumed more in the bidebeck tapes in the connection it felt like she just wore what she wore in the affair and there's also business about jill's house actually i think trevor's slightly neater as well for it. Who knows where these decisions come in and who knows the power of a small changed decision. Um, as well as the kind of slight difference in I think film quality um, I'm sure about the kind of colour gamut if that's the word for it as well as the costume changes I mean they're all subtle things here but they are changes. We also have the business 
of um, Jill's house being the wrong one. I talk more about this in the connection where it, it comes up, I think, more prominently. Um, but there are all these little differences, and yet somehow this is unmistakably Beidebeck, where the connection uh, is less so, at least less effectively so. So look at all the differences. There's a difference in length. Um, this is a film. This is feature length in two parts, rather than one-hour bites. Uh, the the feel of it, the look of it, is darker. I suppose the plot. I mean, the plot's dramatic. That's another commercial. Why do they have these? Back in a second. And we're back with part three of part one, if you see what I mean. If you are watching this on DVD, my apologies for the little interruptions there. But um, I was talking about the differences between all of these. and The, the plot ought to be darker. I mean, the Beidebeck affair, the plot is about why did Trevor get um, everyday Spanish for beginners instead of that four LP set by Bix Beidebeck. And here it's about dumping nuclear waste. I mean, if nothing else, this is a very 1980s issue. Um, I, I actually cannot remember now whether this is explicitly part of it or whether just Alan Plato said it wryly later. But he is not—he was not unaware of Edge of Darkness at the time this was going on. Troy Kennedy Martin's Edge of Darkness. Actually, there's a book in the BFI TV Classics range about Edge of Darkness, which I particularly recommend because author Troy Kennedy Martin writes the last section in it and he's fascinating I actually have a uh, copy of the script for that but that's this is that's for a story for another time if you want to talk to me about Troy Kennedy Martin do please email me on on wg at williamgallagher.com and you know shock we can also talk about Beidebeck too if there's something I can tell you such as why I never shut up and how sore is my throat at the moment answer getting very sore you can't catch something, can this? Can you? Can you through this kind of thing? Anyway, um, the darker plot. I mean, I say it that way. The darker plot, because it isn't, is it? You're watching this. It is light and it is fun. What it isn't is empty. It isn't gentle. It's not without purpose, which a lot of ostensibly gentle dramas are. This is the length it is for money reasons, but it's the length. It works the length. It is. There's no padding, to my mind. There's so. I the thing that impresses me more is there's no cramming in it either. There is. There's a lot of story wedged into this, um, but it doesn't feel crammed. It doesn't feel like it races around. It feels like you're sitting down for a nice time with these people. And I don't think that's generally appreciated. Um, I don't think. You, you get how difficult that must be to create. I mean, there's your blank piece of paper, there's your blank computer screen, off you go. Make something that people like sitting down with that doesn't throw tricks at them, that doesn't throw cliffhangers at them, that just has people talking. This is a, such a big thing for me that I'm probably mentioned it a lot, but <clears throat> I know I didn't say it in the book, so please let me... Uh, away with it here now. My ideal of drama, and actually I I believe Alan Plaid said the same thing once, the perfect drama is two people in a room talking. Like myself, I think it has to be two people in a room arguing, and it's incredibly important to me that they both be arguing 
passionately about things that they both that they care about and the capstone to the whole thing is they must both be right yeah. it doesn't happen a huge amount in the Bible tape but when we get to that end section where Peterson the man with no name is talking about what's going on I mean plainly we agree with Jill and Trevor if we didn't originally the the whole series has kind of guided us to be with them but Peterson has a point uh, he is working for the defense of the realm he disinformation is a genuine tool I mean like it or not agree with it or not it is valid in the sense that for the people to whom it works it really works and they have reasons to do it if you don't have reasons in this then one side is nothing and, and I, I simply cannot care if one side is nothing more than a foil for the the hero's side um, it's hard and it's i think it's quite dangerous in a dramatic sense to create um antagonists and protagonists that are exactly equal because um, ultimately you're going to have your own your protagonists win i suppose almost always i can thankfully think of examples when that didn't happen um but that's hard when you've made the antagonist be equal strength but it also means when it works it is vastly more satisfying and rewarding i i talk a lot about alan plater because you and i are talking about the Beidebeck saga but also because i found uh things he was good at are things i want to do dialogue especially characters of course but uh, of other writers that have uh that are that i follow if you like there's the obvious example is aaron sorkin i mean it's dialogue mad aaron sorkin i think his dialogue is wonderful i just think it's very very different to bite back this is naturalistic can you have surrealistic naturalistic dialogue yes you can you're looking at it can you look at dialogue yes when the characters are saying it in front of you and i'm babbling over um, Aaron Sorkin um, actually made a big deal in the West Wing and stuff he wrote about writing the West Wing that uh, this was the case that you had to have characters who were on two sides that they were equally strong and he's kind of walked away with it in things like Studio 60 and the newsroom people are set up to be the big bad villains but they are cardboard thin um, just inevitably so um, consequently those two series are, they have their fun moments and they're admirable in many ways but they're nowhere near as satisfying as uh, as the West Wing was, as Sports Night was. Um, they're very up on their feet, overt, the, the good ones and the bad, about good, the goodies and the baddies, if you like, whereas Beidebeck works really quite hard to not have black and white baddies. It, I suppose he does have black and white goodies. Um, you could argue that Jill uh, is bossy, I suppose. You could argue that Trevor is a wimp i suppose but we've just seen him next to dave the wimp and the comparison doesn't stand up and jill and more that she gets things done than she's bossy um in the the Bidebeck short story that i managed to get published in my in my book is non-fiction but it includes uh, one of alan's pieces of fiction a short Bidebeck story in that one uh, jill swinburne has taken over at san quentin high she has replaced mr wheeler and yes you completely buy that she's not bossy she's just right you know you can't see trevor i mean i think it's quite appropriate in that same story trevor has taken early retirement that's where their characters go and that's 
that's right for it um but so there they are black and white goodies with a little crinkle of gray every now and again and the absolute note i love this moment every time i'm in the car and the windshield's white, but i remember this moment for some reason um he doesn't have black and white villains now you might be thinking peterson the man with no name black and white villain um but he is the man with no name who falls in love with jill swinburne um in some ways it's a shame in the novel that we get hobson in briefly for all the fun of that and all the advantages of it uh peterson i'm gonna keep saying it, the man with no name because i love that peterson the man with no name coming back to tell them what's going on that character has moved a lot usually alan played the characters and move hum, humongous i meant to say humendous huge and tremendous amounts characters are incredibly different at the end than they are at the start and that does not happen in Beidebeck or get lost before it but Peterson does move on I mean here he is doing the scary thing and doing it quite well but interestingly Trevor can make terrible jokes that you want to steal later in the face of such threats and then later on the boat when peterson is he following jill or not well yes he is but why is he following her is it duty or is it love um and then when we did have him coming back at the end um he gets the line that hobson had uh in the book um there's a, an exchange where jill and trevor ask him um yeah, what is a nice man like you doing in a job like this the response is great. The response is, the, I think it says, um, the answer is rising slowly. It's a great line. But I think what's more significant is the fact that they can come in with what's a man like you doing in a job like that with the stated implication that uh, this isn't a bad person. Why would you ask about a bad person in a bad career? Of course they are. Peterson has become, if not one of the good guys, then he has stopped from being one of the bad guys. We do get the Grey Guardians, and they never change, and they invade the house shortly, and there's no greyness about that. Well, there's grey in the name. Sorry, I didn't think that through. There's no um, ebb and flow. There's no light and shade with them. They are ominous threat of the week. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so it's not always the case that things move, but it's interesting to me that ordinarily characters move enormously in Beidebeck, they don't tend to move at all really when it's there the main characters uh, mr wheeler is always one note mr wheeler it's, it is just a terrific note uh, mr carter is the same there's not a lot of movement in him it's just joyous when he's there jill and trevor they are progressing in this relationship but they're not changing i mean that relationship will be threatened but we join them in the Biderbeck affair already together we stay with them in the tapes already together and staying together and yes they're moving in the probationary cohab line but it's not a gigantic difference it's not a gigantic move for them and yet somehow it works maybe that's what alan particularly meant by how it would it could become soap like in the end because a very important part of soap is that characters do not change uh, i mean they go through hell and back every episode but they don't change very much um maybe he thought that about Biderbeck 
for it. It's hard to know because nothing else Alan Plater did ran quite this way. I he wrote uh was it seventeen or eighteen episodes of Zed Cars. That was over a longer time and it was more hours of footage on television. Um he did much higher profile things. There's uh, Fortunes of War. He did things that were controversial, he did controversial one offs like um the Land of Green Ginger, for example. Uh, but I can't think, actually, of anything that he came back to in the way he did with Beiderbeck. Uh He did do Last of the Blonde Bombshells for BBC in 2000, uh, starring Judy Dench, and he came back to that in that he made it... Well, he made it into one stage show that toured very successfully, as uh, Blonde Bombshells of 1943, I think it was, um, and actually he made it into... Later he made it into another stage show the tour very successful and I think he made it into a third stage show uh, fundamental differences in how many casts he could have for example changed his story and I actually think he got better and better as it went along but ostensibly well no that really was the same story told uh, three or four different very similar ways he didn't ever go back to other characters Shirley Rubenstein said to me uh, when I was interviewing her about all this that Alan just wanted to stay with these characters. That's why he wanted to write the Beiderbeck tapes as a novel, even when ITV said no. They were in his head and he wanted to stay with them. And and thank God he did in a way. I suppose if it's true that David Cunliffe... Uh, actually, David doesn't remember this either. The problem with writing about a book that's this long ago, that a lot of details have been lost, a lot of details are not recorded or the recordings, the documentation doesn't survive. David doesn't remember that he banged on about it, but <clears throat> it seems to be the case. It was certainly a continued effort by someone to get ITV to say yes. Maybe, I'm sure that continued effort would have happened. Um, there was certainly a huge public um, outcry is the phrase that came to mind, that's wrong, is it was a public demand for a sequel after the Biderbeck affair. So maybe ITV would have caved eventually but the fact that it happened the way it did meant by the time ITV caved the story was written and it was a story written as a novel um, that would have been Alan Plater's second novel so I don't think he, I think he wrote ones later that were um, novelistic is that the word he was still writing as a, a TV guy here, I know. I think I'm talking rubbish to you there. What I'm thinking is that the Biderbeck tapes was perhaps it was freer because it could be a novel. Um, he could go. He could go to Athens. It could go anywhere he liked. And maybe in the course of production, knowing that he wouldn't, have, maybe he would actually have been presented with this fact that you can write a one-off movie, and then maybe that would change to you can write a, a two-parter. But he probably wouldn't have been given the scope to do six off the bat he surely he wouldn't have been told go on go to Athens um, so the the novel liberated Alan to tell the story and uh, that makes the Meidebeck tapes different I think I'm convinced this is at Euston Station by the way because I actually recognize those lamps uh, no they're not there now but they look really familiar to me don't cassettes look old um I think Beiderbeck Tapes is rich and full and hugely enjoyable. The Beiderbeck Connection, although there is a book of it, Alan, Alan wrote it as a novelisation. He didn't write it till about four, he didn't come out about four years after the show aired. Uh, so obviously that didn't have an effect 
on the scripts, whereas I think the tapes inevitably did. I mean, you look at the books and the, the final tapes and the scripts in the middle, and there are these lines I told you about that survive exactly all the way through. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the material was there, and I think it helped. The tapes seems very different to me, and I love that. I also love, I don't know why, it really appeals to me, little moments like that little kid. You think that now, that was how many years ago? That 87, uh, 87 97, 2007, 25 odd years ago? Or am I going for 35 years ago? Anyway, no, 25 years ago. There you go. Um, how old is that kid now? Listen, if you're listening to this, hello, wg at williamgallagher.com. Be nice to hear from you. I wonder if I get a second draft of the book and I can include you. We can't, I'm nuts, we're coming to the end already. I can't believe I've rabbited at you for one hour, 12 minutes and 18, 19, 20 seconds. Oh, but you know, most of what I've been telling you has been about the making of this rather than explicitly about certain scenes. Look at this one. This is a scene that just had Charlie the Gravedigger digging a grave and singing. What was the plot function there? If you're thinking there wasn't one, I think you're wrong. Now, on the one hand, a nice moment. That's the greatest thing about Beidebeck is that you have these nice moments with interesting characters, and there he was. Also, you, uh, you, know, you think about pacing and drama. Um, it wasn't exactly frenetic before that scene, but it was running at one pace, and then we had a gentle bit, and now we're into this, and we're actually canted towards the end already. But that scene did something really particular. Um, oh, do you want homework for a few minutes? No, you've gone off me now, haven't you? Um, I can't keep talking about this one point until the next scene that explains why it was an issue. Um, so do remind me when I get there. You're not going to, are you? just going to see if I wait and stew. Oh, uh, fantastic that this should be about now. Uh, the scenes here... Um, you see the thing on the board, he's going to pull down and it's a map. So we're going to have the line, what is this? Even money says it's a map. Even money says it's Holland. Um, I find that a really interesting scene. I sound so anarchy when I say that. But um, this was mid-80s and so was Alan Plater's wonderful version of Fortunes of War. I mean, Olivia Manning's original books are just incredibly good, but his series, I mean, it's fascinating how he made it his and hers at the same time, and it's rightly one of the best examples of BBC drama ever, really. But it actually includes a scene with a guy showing a map somewhere, and the dialogue is nearly the same. It isn't Holland, but otherwise the dialogue is the same and I have never noticed that. In all the research I've done for the book and in all the, just the years of happening to watch Alan's stuff as it came out, I've never seen a whole scene move like that. Many references uh, making it to the Mexican border by nightfall, that's a very common little gag of his, but wholesale scenes not so much. I'm not sure what I think about it actually, it feels like a cheat except it really works here and it really works in Fortunes of War. It's just a, a, an oddity from him. And pro I think the only time in his whole career.
I do think Kevin Keith Smith, sorry, is very good as Mr. Wheeler. Here it is. Here's the plot reason. Can you see what it is yet? Suddenly we have snow everywhere. We didn't have that at the school. We, I mean, look at it. It's bucketed. Can you bucket down in snow? Uh, so what that pl the plot point um, of that scene with Charlie the Gravedigger, remember, the plot point suggests it was in the script, and uh, I th can't remember now, actually, but certainly the reason it was shot that way and inserted that way then is to seed in our head that there is snow, that snow is coming, because look what we've got here, buckets of this stuff. Does that hat detract from the gag or add to it? I do not know. I don't know what happened on the location, but you can imagine how difficult it was to find the only dates they could do were covered in snow like this. And so it's... Well, I certainly didn't register it as a big continuity error. There you go, from his novel, The Binderbeck Tapes. Um, it just seemed natural, and I wonder how much of that is me just being carried away by the characters and the story as ever, and how much was that just subtly inserted scene with the start of flakes coming down. It's a nice piece of work, whichever way it was. Uh, we've got less than a minute now before the end of the credits. Um, WG at WilliamGallagher.com. If, if there's anything I haven't made any sense about, that seems highly likely, do email me. And remember, of course, the book, uh, BFI TV Classics, the Biderbeck Affair by BFI, British Film Institute and Palgrave Macmillan, written by me, William Gallagher. I'm my lights, I'm watching the clock now. Um, if you're not listening to this through iTunes uh, already, please go there or to williamgallagher.com where you'll get all of the podcasts for a series, a trailer for the book with some nice video clips and lots of ends, odds and ends that I could get to that I couldn't quite cram into the book. Uh, thank you so much for listening to all of this. It's been a treat talking to you. Take care now. Bye-bye.